So, again, welcome. Last night we spoke, most of you were there last night. Who was not there last night? A few of you. We spoke at some length about Kirtan and the uh, philosophical, theological underpinnings, foundation for such a, a practice. It's good to get your feet on a philosophical ground before you start chanting and dancing and reaching for the sky of spiritual possibilities. <clears throat> and um, so I wanted to give everybody a chance to ask questions today. You can ask questions based on what we spoke about last night, or you can ask questions about something you've been reading relative to um, spiritual practice in this tradition, or you can ask questions based on interest in some other spiritual practice that you want to compare this to, or you can ask any question you like about anything. (laughs) And we'll see what we can do to answer. So, who will be bold enough to ask a question? Yes? I have a question. I've been uh, thinking about um, emotions, negative emotions, and it seems that most of them um, can be sort of redirected lust and anger and you know even laziness can be redirected you can flake out on doing the wrong thing um, but the one that I can't really get around is um, envy um, and I've been meditating on envy because it seems to be it's the hardest to see myself it's the most embarrassing to cop to and it seems to be one of the most destructive too because if we are envious towards the wrong people we're committing operad so I'm wondering, um, can you talk a little bit about envy and how to do damage control with it? Well, um, the point that Gore Krishna is bringing up in a larger context is the, I believe, is the idea that in bhakti, it's obviously an emotive type of a, a practice, right? And um, we all have mental, emotional life and so forth, and really that is part of our if you want to say materially conditioned life or um, our egoic material life, at the same time there are spiritual emotions that are that arise directly out of this out of the atma, hmm? and this uh, really only if the practice that we're involved in is aimed at that kind of an ideal. In other words, there are some spiritual practices that are aimed at ending the predicament of material existence. Bas, that's it. And then to sit, if you will, forever in eternal silence. Um, And there are some spiritual traditions, bhakti, for example, uh, being one that seeks to end the material egoic self and dismantle that in the context of something else, really, a positive spiritual culture that lends to emotive life in transcendence. As we know, our emotive life here brings about the kind of diversity that we experience. You know, you feel one way and I feel another way, basically. So my point is, and we touched on this last night, there, there is diversity in transcendence. There's, a, there's such a possibility of diversity in transcendence that includes the unity that we sense transcendence must be about. 
transcending the differences that we have, hmm, that are at odds with one another, uh, uh, emotive realities to one extent or another, because they're not all centered in the same place. Hmm? If our life was all centered in the same place, if we all loved the same person, let's say, it would be easier to get along with one another. Hmm? Something like that. So to center then one's entire loving propensity hmm, in, in, the, in the, the, the face of the Godhead that invites that. Hmm? That's what we mean by Krishna. Krishna is the particular face of the God that invites that type of hmm, possibility. So, when we do so, then in transcendence, after the dismantling of the false egoic sense of self and, and settling the ocean of material emotions that are rising and falling like tidal waves in our life that make it difficult for us to practice, for example, when that's settled, the practice becomes steady and so forth, then there's the possibility of, of new waves coming, if you will, in the ocean of our uh, spiritual self. But these are waves that are all centered uh, in the same place. To use that example and play that out, that out if I was to go to a placid, beautiful you know, lake that's just quiet and all in it, it brings some mental serenity. And then uh, some kids came and started throwing stones in there. I'd probably get up and move on, you know, because it would disturb the, the, the sense of serenity that the, that the calm lake afforded me. But if we were to throw one, two, three, hundred, 108 stones, let's say, all in the exact same place, then there would be ripples or waves that went out concentrically and the, however many stones, it wouldn't make a difference. In fact, it would just make the waves bigger and, and so forth. So there, would, there would be a dynamic kind of harmony or peacefulness, do you follow me, that comes from that kind of lake experience in comparison to the static peacefulness of just the placid, quiet lake with no ripples. Hmm? I'm talking about two different kinds of realization in transcendence. One being a kind of a contentless experience, whatever that is. Hmm? Just eternal quietude. Another, where there is some movement in transcendence, but it's not movement that, is, that creates disharmony. Indeed, it, it augments, it ornaments the, 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 the unity, the oneness, the difference ornaments it. This is what bhakti is about. Therefore, you find different waves of emotion in the ocean of bhakti rasa. We, we, we invoked the term rasa last night, rasa vaisaha, from the Taitreya Upanishad. It, it says, Brahman is rasa. This is a very high idea of Brahman, Brahman being the great, you know, the, the absolute. That's a very vague way of speaking about something that doesn't lend itself to words. Hmm? Um, but rasa is a more refined kind of a definition and it speaks about idea of Brahman with movement. That which is everywhere can't move, but it's moving anyway. That's, that is called rasa. What makes the movements in, 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 in transcendence and the variety 
So there will be a wave, for example, of Ram Bhakti. Hmm? There's a nice story. I've told it before. I'll tell it to you again briefly. See if I can remember. In, 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 uh, there's a, uh, Vishnu has a carrier. Hmm? Actually, uh, Krishna in, in, in his p- palatial uh, regal leela hmm? in the city of Dwarka. And there his carrier is a, is a, a swan named Garuda. Hmm? And so he told Garuda that to go and tell Hanuman. Have you heard of Hanuman? Hanuman is a great servitor of Ram, of course. He's a Ram Bhakta. Garuda is a Krishna Bhakta. Of course, Ram and Krishna are two different faces of the same person, corresponding with the hearts of different devotees in who in whom love has awakened in a slightly different way. Hmm? Same center. But the ripple is, you know, like that idea. <laughs> the same center. So so Krishna told Guru to go tell uh, Hanuman, he's a great devotee. Hmm? Go find Hanuman. He's over there. Tell him I want to speak to him. So Garuda flies there. He's a pretty fast flyer. And he gets there and he says, Krishna, I've come on the command of Krishna. He says, you're a great devotee of his. He wants to see you. Hanuman says, well, okay, you know, tell him I'll be there in a few minutes. So Garuda flies back and, and he says, what's this? You know, you say he's a great devotee. I'm offering him a ride, you know, to get to you expediently and so forth. And he says, you know, give me a few minutes, I'll, I'll get there. And so Krishna said, that's all right, go back and tell him that uh, Ram is in Dwarka and Ram wants to see him. <laughs> so then Garuda flies back and, and, you know, and he says, Ram wants to see you. And, and Hanuman says, says, tell him I'll be there in a minute. <laughs> so Garuda f- flies back. He's wondering, what's going on? As he's flying back to Dwarka, Ram is coming back the other way. He, Hanuman, Hanuman is coming back the other way. In other words, Hanuman is known for his powerful, among other things, leaps. It is said that from the tip of South India, he, he jumped to the island of Lanka where Sita had been kidnapped by Ravana, Ram's consort, and he was assisting Ram in, 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 in delivering her from the clutches of Ravana and so forth. So the point is, here in the name of Ram, he thought, I'll be there in a minute, I'm not going to go on Garuda, he's a slow boat, you know, <laughs> to nowhere. <laughs> so his devotion was such that he had jumped all the way there, he had already, you know, seen Krishna, Krishna manifest himself as Ram and said, you know, go back to And Hanuman was jumping back the other way, chanting, Ram! <laughs> and Garuda... So, these, this, is a, this is a story to illustrate the idea that in transcendence, there is, if you compare it to an ocean, there are different waves of love. There's a, there's a transcendental bias, if you will. We ordinarily think that spiritual life should be devoid of any bias, any prejudice. If a, if a, if a, if a political figure has a bias, we should say, if a political figure doesn't have a bias, we'd be surprised, uh, but <laughs> they're not supposed to. So if she does, then she or he is bought out by the corporations or, or, or whatever, and it's a, it's a defect, right? Because they're supposed to be equally 
administering on behalf of all. So we kind of think of God in the same way. Hmm? Should be equal to everybody. But then everybody's not equal in how they approach God <laughs> either. So God is equal in that God reciprocates accordingly. Hmm? And therefore there's possibility of variety at the same time within the context of the equality. Do you follow? Krishna says in Gita, Jejatamam papadyante he told Arjuna, everybody follows me, that's unavoidable. <laughs> they may call me this or that or the other thing, but <laughs> it's me they're following, whether they know it or not. Hmm? Even they're following the dictates of their mind. That mind is a manifestation of my, my, maya shakti. Hmm? And, and, and so forth. So, he says, but as they, in, in a, dependent relative to how they approach me, then I reciprocate accordingly. I'm equal to everybody, but my reciprocation is equal to their approach. Hmm? Love is, you know, reciprocal dealings. It can be valued on a ladder uh, that measured the extent to which there were such reciprocal dealings between love and the object of love. So, so there's a there's a kind of a spiritual bias, if you will, that is very beautiful and very charming. That the story I told was was charming, hmm? and Garuda was amazed at the bhakti of of Hanuman when he got back to Dwarka, and he was you know it was a, I'm sure it was explained to him, <laughs> and so on. So um, so it's a world then of emotions, and it speaks to us about the idea that the self. Hmm, has a potential, a possibility, the Atma, to have an emotive life in transcendence if that Atma gets a gracious kind of grant, or if you will, or a gift of Bhakti. Bhakti is, is really the Godhead's extending himself to us. Hmm? And if we take advantage of that, then such possibility uh, for really realizing the full potential of of what it means when we say that we have ananda or joy or love in our constitution. So, so Gaur Krishna is asking about well, we got these two things. We got this emotive life and transcendence, which is very high. Remember. This all starts to develop after the false sense of self is completely dismantled. So we have to concentrate there, in one sense, and know that, that there are great possibilities that lie beyond that. We shouldn't artificially kind of... That sounds nice, we could focus there, but it might be at the cost of paying attention to the, to the, to the work at hand, if you will. And then we can artificially kind of import our emotional sense of self here into there, but that doesn't work. You can't go there with your shoes on. Hmm? You have to leave something behind, and it's your false sense of self, hmm? full of emotions and all, and we very much feel that it's me, but even neuroscience can show you. It's not. Let's press this neuron over here, and you change <laughs> entirely. <laughs> it's possible. This self is very tenuous. Hmm? But being is not tenuous, as I said last. The 
fact that we are a unit of existence, that's not tenuous. You could take away my whole brain and stop me from existing. Hmm? Existence cannot turn into non-existence. And non-existence cannot turn into existence. So we, we know that we exist. Get used to it. Is the point. It's not going to end. Hmm? And it had no beginning. Hmm? No one here can think about a time when they didn't exist. Hmm? And neither should you try. <laughs> hmm? So, given that there is this high idea of spiritual emotional life, without that we may transcend our egoic sense of self and sit in eternal unity, hmm? so to speak, a oneness without experiencing differentiation in emotive possibilities, potential in the spiritual life. But in bhakti we have that opportunity. Hmm? It's, a, it's, a, it's a sadhana, a, a, a spiritual practice that has that as its goal. Okay, so on the one side, the high side, we have this spiritual emotional life. The other side, we have our material emotional life. What Gore Krishna is asking about is the idea in bhakti whereby we try to harness our material emotional life in such a way that they become somewhat spiritualized, our material emotions. That's a pretty nice idea because we really got a bundle of them. Hmm? And if our spiritual practice says you have to eradicate this emotional life, that's hard to do. But if you could somehow take... you work with your emotional life in such a way that it could become foster spiritual life, foster ego, foster ego effacement and so forth. That's what I would call a very user-friendly kind of a practice. Let's take, for example, a simple thing here. We, we sat here and we sang and we, we chanted. I gave a whole you know, talk about philosophy underlying the kirtan and so forth. But from the view of the person across the street, we're over here singing something. There's nothing more to it than that, perhaps. Hmm? So, you know, you could look at it like that. It's, we, we, we sang. Hmm? So, what makes it different? I mean, we're, we're using, we, there may be the different words, but a different tune, uh, but basically we're singing. Hmm? We're expressing and singing. Hmm? But that singing is is not really like ordinary singing. It is in so many ways in that you might like to sing, so therefore you might hear, hey, at the bhakti shop, they've got a kirtan going on, and let's go there and sing. Hmm? And so you might not know what it's about or, or understand the philosophy behind it, but you go there and you like to sing, and it's community and, and so forth, and it's spiritual. They say it is. I believe it. Okay, I'll go there. And I sing, something like that. So, in one sense, you're really only just singing, hmm? but you're using a propensity that you have, materially speaking, to sing in such a way that it will bring you in the spiritual direction. Hmm? And we all have these propensities. We have a propensity to sing, to eat, for example, to, to, have, to have community, to have sangha. Like I said last night, some spiritual paths the path of jnana yoga, for example. In the path of jnana yoga, jnana means knowledge, the way in which we advance is by detachment, by giving up things, by ragya. You see these guys in India sometimes, you know, like 
sleeping on a bed of nails or something like that. I wouldn't call it a user-friendly path. <laughs> That's what I mean. So, you know, fasting for, you know, long, long periods and so forth. In bhakti tradition, you might know, we don't fast. We, a little bit here and there. <laughs> hmm? Only to feast. Uh, but... <laughs> So, you know, for example, we cook for the deity of Krishna. And, 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 you know, we don't cook just roots and, you know, things that have fallen from trees. It's a, it's a very nice cuisine. Hmm? So this is a very different idea hmm? than sleeping, like I say, on a bed of nails. From our perspective, it doesn't matter if you sleep more or less. If you dream about Krishna, well, you might as well sleep more. <laughs> so... However, less or more you eat or sleep is not the criterion of how spiritually advanced you are. Hmm? It's not about sleeping less or eating less, necessarily. Hmm? It's about loving God, and if for loving God I should eat something, then I should eat, and eat sufficiently. If I should fast on an occasion that will, will foster that, then I'll fast. So in a bhakti, my renunciation, if you will, it's a very relative thing. If there's an instance in which by renouncing something, my bhakti will be enhanced, I'll renounce it. If there's an instance in which enjoying something will enhance my bhakti, I'll enjoy it. Hmm? If someone, you've come to the temple of Krishna and someone says, please take prasad, and they offer you a sweet from the plate of the deity, and you say, no, I'm fasting, hmm? <laughs> then you don't get it. Hmm? It's, it's a kind of, you've kind of like offended the that's a form of bhakti. Hmm? So it's an opportunity for you. It will be enjoyable. Hmm? You normally say, well, you know, enjoying the senses, this is taking you away from spiritual life, kind of a thing. But here's an instance where that is kind of like dovetailed or something. You know, it's, it, it, that propensity is utilized in spiritual practice. So this way, bhakti is very kind of user-friendly. Um, we can have community here. Bhakti, like I said last night, we advance not by detachment, but by attachment. Hmm? We become attached to Krishna, but we also become attached to Krishna's devotees and others who are devoted. Hmm? Uh, uh, you know, to, to, it's uh, uh, devoted to Krishna. It's, uh, it's, it's, it fosters our devotion to Krishna. My attachment to you, because you're also devoted, fosters my attachment to, to, to Krishna, and my, your attachment to me fosters your attachment. So, it's adding something on rather than giving me something up. And if in the context of adding something on, something we feel has no utilization, then we let it go. So renunciation, what I want to say, is comes about kind of naturally in the context of bhakti. Hmm? Of course, not entirely naturally in a sense, because you understand it theoretically, this will not be favorable for my bhakti. But then you still have to give it up. Hmm? But that's the basis on which you're giving up, not just giving it up for the sake of giving it up. So, so, so in our material life, we have all kinds of emotions. Hmm? They're material, but there may be a way that we can use those in the context of bhakti, that they actually become instrumental in dismantling our material ego. It's the idea sometimes given, if you, let's say you stepped on a thorn in the forest, and it got stuck in your foot. In order to pull it out, you took another thorn hmm? and used it to, to 
pull it out, something like that. Hmm? So that still helps to give our material emotional life a context. It's still a thorn <laughs> in a sense, but it can be utilized nonetheless. So this is the context for some of you might not be aware of his question. So he's saying he's kind of figured out how to use different emotions and ploy them in, in bhakti if he feels like, oh, you know, I really like to sing. He goes to the kirtan or something like that or, or you know, whatever, whatever it might be. There's, 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 but he says envy is an emotion. And this is, he can't figure out how to use that in Krishna's service. And, well, it's a good point. And I'll tell you something about that, since you asked. <laughs> the, the Bhagavat, Srimad Bhagavat, which is the sequel to the Bhagavad Gita. That's all about the life of Krishna. In the Gita, Krishna speaks to Arjuna. It's like one hour in the life of Krishna. It's certainly an important speech and so forth. But the Bhagavat tells about the whole leela of Krishna from beginning to end with a lot of, lot of, lot of philosophical context to support it. So it's a long book, but anyway, in the beginning it says, Dharma projita kaitabhotra paramunir matsaranam satam. It says, this book is for Dharma projita kaitabhotra. It has nothing to do with, it says, cheating, cheating dharma, cheating, cheating religion. What does that mean, we might say? Cheating. He says, that it has nothing to do with any any kind of a so-called spiritual practice for material interests, for acquisition of wealth. It's not for that. It's not a spiritual discipline for, which he says is a cheating religion. It's like uh, sometimes in India, for breakfast they'll cook puffed rice. You ever eat puffed rice? They make it with some spice, you know. My Guru Maharaj used to eat it. He said, it's really cheating the stomach. <laughs> There's really nothing there. It's puffed rice, you know. It's, just like, it's air. <laughs> it's not much there. It's you know, what he wanted to say. So it's eating, but it's cheating the stomach. So this is, you know, you're approaching God, but you want material, you want material acquisition. That's like about as ignorant of a thing as you could do in a sense. I mean, you're not material, you're not a thing. Hmm? And the acquisition of things only confuses you in terms of understanding that you're not a thing because you tend to identify with those things. And you're asking God, who's really not a thing, uh, you know, for that, which you could have got kind of on your own, <laughs> in a sense. But okay, you know, it's something. Uh, so... Uh, that's another thing. We'll get to that. Well, we are, we are on that topic. But, but, but first of all, it says, it's, it, this, this is not about any kind of such religion for something. Religion for getting money. Religion for getting fame, recognition. Even religion for mukti, for liberation, for salvation. It's not for that. It's bhakti for its own sake. Love for its own sake. Hmm? And he says, Dharma projita kaitavutra paramuniamatsaranam satam. It's for people who are satam and nirmatsaranam. Satam means honest. It means thoroughly honest. It's another name for devotee, satam. Really truthful, really like, like satsanga is like this. Satsanga means truthful, sat, real, 
association. You get together in the evening with other devotees and then you compare notes. Okay, how did you fail today? <laughs> and it's really lively. Everybody's got something to say. <laughs> but as the nights go on, either the sangha becomes smaller <laughs> or, or, or quieter, one of the two. <laughs> Uh, and, and it, you know, then then a real kirtan begins, right? So the, it's having effect. So this is satsanga to have a truthful sangha. Uh, so he says, uh, this is for those who are truthful, thoroughly honest, and nirmatsaranam, relative to the question, without envy. So envy is a very um, unbecoming emotion, material emotion, in the context of bhakti. I mean, it is anyway, but in the context of bhakti, it's very unbecoming. Therefore, of all uh, emotions, we're not asked to immediately give up any one of them. As I said, you know, you can use your friendly, you can try to use them and dovetail them in the, in, in the, in the context of bhakti, but this envy should be retired. Hmm? Now, at the same time, there is a spiritual envy. But this is on the very high side. Hmm? In Krishna Leela, in the divine play of Krishna, for example, in the, he has different... Um, um, we talked about Radha last night. Radha is the, is the personification of bhakti, the full face of love of God. And it's said in Leela, she expands herself into many other milkmaidens that embody one aspect of herself entirely or another aspect of herself, emotive aspect, entirely. Hmm? So that at any time, any one of them can be fully available to satisfy, to serve Krishna emotionally, spiritually. Hmm? It's a very kind of high theological concept, how all this works out. But in that, then we have to acknowledge from our material experience that there is such a thing as a lover's quarrel, and it's usually based on some kind of jealousy, which would be kind of be a corollary of, of envy. Hmm? It's a little different. Hmm? But let's, for the sake of discussion, mix them together a little bit. And we find that sometimes... Let's say my 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 lover is spending an, an inordinate inordinate amount of time with with some other guy. It's nothing really, but it it might be building up in my mind as something. Hmm? And I'm saying then I say, why you spend so much time with him? And she laughs and says, he loved me so much. You know, you, you feel like that. You know, the little jealousy sometimes. It, you know, it's it can be um, charming. Hmm? Not if it's really, you know, extreme. <laughs> it drives people to extremes and so forth. So there's a place for this in the nuances of all the nuances of love in Leela, hmm, centered on Krishna. Hmm? And so somebody plays a competitor role in the Leela at times. Hmm? Uh, I'll give you a story from the Leela to help you appreciate this point. Krishna was in the forest with his cows and herding mates who all love him like friends, 
they have this kind of emotional love called sakirasa. Rasa means aesthetic rapture, uh, divine aesthetic rapture. Again, it's this emotional life of the atma in relation to the to the to the center, Krishna. So all these friends, they they have just like you love a friend, and how do you love a friend? It's like we're equals, you know. I tell it, tell you like I feel, you know. You tell me like you feel. So they have a relationship like this with Krishna. Hmm? Sometimes they serve him, sometimes he serves them. Hmm? So they're out herding cows, playing in the forest and so forth. If Krishna goes behind a tree for a moment, they faint because they couldn't see him for a second. Hmm? Hmm? <laughs> so some of his friends, and are different types of friends. There are four basic divisions of, the, of these friends. The nuances of, of, of friendly love. And one of them is a type of love that, um, that involves his friends in his romantic life with Radha and the, the gopis, the, 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 the milkmaidens. Hmm? Mostly the friends don't participate in that. Around noontime in the Leela, this is like a day in the life of the Leela of Krishna, at noontime, with his friends in the forest and so forth, herding cows and and playing sports and so forth, making up things to do and so forth, uh, they, it, it, Krishna comes up with an excuse to leave the group. Hmm? He says something like, a famous astrologer has come to town, I heard. I think some of us should go and get his association. Hmm? Can't thank everybody, you know, that'd be... Uh, you know, overwhelming, but a few of us, you and you go, and something like this. So it's so those type of friends now that are part of his romantic life that assist him in that, they go with him, and he has a leela with Radha and the gopis in another place. Hmm? Later on, they meet up again, and so on and so forth. So one of these friends, the pr principal friend, is named Subal. So Krishna's in the forest. Hmm? He tells Subal, he says, you know, there's nobody around, it's you and me right now. I can't live another moment without Radha. Where is she? You've got to bring her here. Subal says, I can't bring her here. That's not possible. You know, she's, she's locked up uh, you know, at her house. Her mother won't let her out. She knows you might be around. And uh, how, how can I go there and bring her in broad daylight? Hmm? This is very complex. Uh, Some of you may not be familiar with Leela, but this is the, how it goes. So, uh, so it just so happens that as I said, that Radha is the pinnacle of devotion. She manifests as different milkmaidens that embody different emotional aspects of herself. So when Radha wants to taste f friendly love, she manifests as Subal, this, this, this cowherd, this mate of Krishna's. So he's, he says, look, and they look alike. Radha and Subal, they, they look very similar. Their, their their faces and so forth in the Leela. So Krishna says, you know, I don't know, you, you look a lot like her, go there somehow with her and do something and you've got to bring her here. So uh, he said, all right, I'll go and bring her. Hmm? I'll try. So he goes there and then he, sees, he, he comes into the village and somebody says, what are you doing here, Subal? Hmm? And he says, oh, a calf from the herd was lost and I'm out just looking for that calf. Hmm? Okay. And so then he goes into the house. He sneaks into the back door, into where Radhika is, Radha. And he says, 
Krishna wants to see you now. She says, how is it possible? He said, give me your clothes and, and you take mine. Hmm? And when you leave here, uh, you know, uh, take a little calf with you, you know, to cover your breasts so that you look more like me because I don't have any. <laughs> and, 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 so, and so they change dresses like, and Radha comes dressed like Subal with a calf in her arms so she gets by all the guards who aren't going to let her go and meet with Krishna in, in, in the middle of the daytime, which is all part of their love for Krishna. It's very complex. So she, anyway, Subal comes and he looks just like Radha, of course. Uh, if I, uh, oh, excuse me, Radha. Radha goes and she looks like Subal. Hmm? Right? And she's dressed like Subal. And Krishna says, Subal, what happened? Where's Radha? And so Radha says, she, she, she's seeing his love for him, for her. And she says, oh, I couldn't, I couldn't bring her. But there's another gopi, Chandravali, I could bring her. <laughs> and then Krishna says, a million Chandravalis could never satisfy me. Oh, <laughs> That's impossible. <laughs> so she, this way, she draws out his love, and she says, "It's me." You see, hmm? so Chandravali is like one of the competitors who 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 creates some jealousy at times. Sometimes he does go with with Chandravali. Now Radha's testing. Who do you really care about? Hmm? <laughs> Something like that. So these are. It's a very. It's hard to. It's a charming story. It's really hard to understand all of the theological and philosophical implications of this. You know, yesterday I gave a pretty philosophical talk, so trust me, this has a real philosophical basis to it, this story. It's, it's not just like a story of ordinary boys and girls, but there's, a, there's, a, there's some kind of a parallel, some kind of similarity. And there's some kind of similarity to our material emotional life and our spiritual emotional life. But this envy, this is uh, something that we're told this should be... Hmm, we should... We have to get it out of the picture. Hmm? Uh, so, uh, although it's a very user, material envy, friendly type of a path, Bhagavatam said there's no place for this in bhakti. It may show up in us because our bhakti is very small or very limited and so forth. So we should look at it like that. Very unbecoming. Hmm? Very unbecoming. After all, it's such a f- it has such potential to fulfill and we should think but just to be on the path is so, um, I mean, it's so auspicious. It's uh, One of my friends used to say, the distance that we have traversed in our material sojourn thus far, before meeting our guru, is far, far greater than the distance we have to go from here. Even though it might be said, it takes many lifetimes. That's nothing compared to the time we've spent thus far. So just to come to such guidance, this is so... From, for, from my perspective, anybody in this room here is just so far along, you may think, I don't even know what he's talking about. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm thinking, well, just see how they've... How, you know, what, where they're, where, how far they've come from, through so many lifetimes, through so many different species. Now they have human life, and now there's some interest in bhakti. Hmm? Wow, they've just come so far. 
And so there may be a little envy that comes here, but the, but if we think about the path, we think, well, just to, just to be on the path, this is so auspicious. Hmm? What we have is so much more than anybody could have uh, materially. Hmm? There may be devotees who are more advanced than us. We might have some envy, but this is not very becoming. Hmm? And if we keep their company, they'll embarrass us, embarrass it away. So I'll rest with this with on this question, citing the Bhagavatam. There's no place for envy <laughs> in bhakti. Another question? May I ask a question, Mark? You may. Let's, he knows a little bit more or less than anybody else has it more. Not that I can't answer it, but uh, a question that might be more relative to some of your level of understanding. You've had some questions, no? Um, well, I have lots of questions, I guess. But <laughs> I, I was wondering what, um, what is the purpose of material, of the material prakriti? What is the, what is the purpose of it? If mm -hmm. our goal is to find space above that. Yeah. No, that's a good question. What's the purpose of material existence? Prakriti, maya, shakti. What's the purpose of that? I think that in one sense it's a, it's a, me it's a metaphysical question and, and, and uh, we have to start out by identifying an ontology, right? What's real? Hmm? What what is uh, uh, what are the ontological truths or facts of life? Okay. And when we identify those, there's not necessarily a why question that can be attached to that. Hmm? It's like we could say, why is there existence? Um, we know there is existence. We shouldn't, in a sense, ask why, because it kind of likes makes us. It leads one to well. Do you think there's not? <laughs> uh, you know. So there are there are there are certain whys that aren't so. I'll still answer why, but <laughs> so <laughs> so uh, appropriate. Um, um, certain things exist, and uh, we are to. Uh, know that they exist. Why does God exist? Why is there existence at all? I mean, it's not a question that, you know, that really deserves an answer in a sense. Hmm? Um, so, and, there, we, and, and, and then also we say, why is there a material life in the first place? Hmm? When we're supposed to be, you know, have a transcendent life, why is there one in the first place? Um, to start to answer that question, I'd say, first, let's be sure there is one. We're experiencing it. Hmm? What, is, what do we mean by material life? It's, a, it's an unfulfilled kind of life that, that if you look at it carefully, uh, it doesn't offer any real prospect for being fully fulfilled, in the very least, and that it has to end. Hmm? And if you want enduring happiness, which I think we all want, and if we derive our happiness from things, which is material life, that we can't keep, that's the recipe for suffering, right? Therefore, the Gita says, dukkha yonayevate. It says that really attachment to things is the womb from which suffering takes birth. 
So, again, let's say you like a thing a real lot. Well, if you can't keep it, that's how big of a problem it is, how much suffering it's going to ultimately, you know, turn into. So, there's a lot of ways to talk about it, of course, but I think it's pretty easy to convince one that there is such a thing as material life and we're experiencing it. We're the experiencer. Hmm? We're subject the subjective reality. And then there's the objective reality. The two aren't the same. You, you can't turn the objective into, into the subjective or the subjective into the objective. And so, there are these two. Mm-hmm. Now, the goal of spiritual life is, is to transcend the influence of things and so forth that are turning our life into, into a thing, making us much less free than the, than the Atma, the self, really is. Mm-hmm. Looks like we're going to die. We get sick. Mm-hmm. The Atma doesn't get sick, and so forth. So, the idea is to, is to transcend that, right? Mm-hmm. And so the question is kind of like, well, well you know, why? <laughs> why? Why aren't we just there? Why are we here in the first place? And why the the journey? And why the trouble? And so on and so forth. Well, um, the answer lies in the fact that, first of all, some things cannot be understood by the mind. That's not unreasonable. Some things cannot be understood by the mind or by reason. Uh, We would say that Yourself transcends reason. Love in its love transcends reason. Love knows no reason. It said even in common English parlance. Hmm? So we we're positing a, 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 a subjective self uh, that is transcended to to things and thought, even hmm? the functioning of the mind or intellect. So. Reason is a faculty of the intellect. It's subordinate to consciousness. It can't reveal consciousness. It, 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 if we were to, you know, try in the court of reason whether God exists, He's not going to show up for the court. Indeed, <laughs> you know, kind of a thing. It's like, you know, or the self even is transcendent to to, to reason. Hmm? So. So, therefore, because there are things that transcend reason and thought that cannot be understood by the mind, in order for us to know about them, we have to have another method. Hmm? So that other method is called, in a broad sense, revelation. Hmm? Let's say, if God wants us to know about God, then we can know. If not... If God doesn't want us to know about God, <laughs> no, no possibility for knowing. Let me put it in terms like this, mathematical terms. If the finite wants to know, and by know I mean understand, which means to control, really. If the finite wants to know the infinite, you know that's not mathematically possible. But, then again, if the infinite wants the finite to know, then what is impossible for the finite becomes possible. Hmm? 
because infinite means infinite possibility. So if the Godhead is the infinite in this example, it is possible for us to know the Godhead if the Godhead wants us to know. But otherwise, on our own effort, based on our finite hmm, sensibilities and so forth, capacity, uh, no possibility. So this makes up for the necessity for knowing comprehensively, which is how we'll be happy comprehensively. Perfect knowledge is that knowledge that informs the action that makes us perfectly happy. Hmm? So if we want to be perfectly happy, we need perfect knowledge. How will we get perfect knowledge? Well, this is what we call revelation. Hmm? So let's take some of the sacred texts, for example. These are in India, the oldest form of revelation, the Upanishads, the Gita, the Bhagavad, these texts. Hmm? And they were manifest through, through sages whose inner life, they heard the sound, if you will. Hmm? And in this, this time period of Kali Yuga, they say it was recorded. Hmm? So, it tells us about things that you wouldn't know, you couldn't know just by exercising your 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 reasoning capacity. Hmm? And so one of the things it tells us is that the Godhead said the Godhead is possessed of Shaktis. Now what I mean by that is let's say there is a um Let's say there is a uh, energetic source like the sun. Hmm? And what does it generate? Energy, right? Like the rays. Okay? Now, the rays of the sun are coming in the room, right? We could say the sun... Go in that room, the sun's in that room. The sun's in the bedroom. Go there if you want to be in the sun, Swami. Okay. So I go in there, and what am I contacting? I'm contacting the rays of the sun. I'm in the sun. But the difference between being in the rays of the sun, which are the energy of the sun, and being in the sun, right? So there's no difference between the rays of the sun and the sun, but there is a difference between the two. Hmm? There's a oneness and a difference between the energy and the energetic. Hmm? So it says the Godhead is it like this. God is the energetic and is possessed of energies that are dependent upon the energetic. They have no independent existence, but they're different at the same time and that we can talk about them differently and they may affect us differently. So, Amongst the shaktis of Bhagavan, there are many, but there are three prime principal shaktis that are described there. You wouldn't know this, but you couldn't figure this out, <laughs> right? But I'm saying, so the, the real texts, they talk about this. They, they give the reasoning for it to help us, you know, um, convince us of it and so forth. But these principal shaktis are hmm, the maya shakti, that is one. Hmm? The Jiva Shakti, that's two. And the Swarup Shakti, that's three. Let's talk about them without using some Sanskrit terms, make it easier. There's the there's the secondary Shakti, 
There's the intermediate Shakti and the primary Shakti. Let's use another, I'll use other English terms. There's, there's the external Shakti, there's the marginal Shakti, and there's the internal Shakti. So, the life of Bhagwan in Leela is entered is the, 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 the Shakti that is the driving force in that Leela that makes he who is everywhere move, hmm? which is what we call Leela. That Shakti is, is the primary Shakti or the internal Shakti. Hmm? Bhakti is constituted of that. Hmm? Bhakti is driving Brahman mad hmm? and making him dance and turning him into Krishna, if you will. This bhakti is non-different from Krishna. Hmm? Bhakti, Krishna is the object of love and bhakti is the vessel of love. So let's take Radha. Radha is love personified. Krishna is the object of love. So Radha is bhakti devi, the devi, the goddess of bhakti. And all forms of bhakti are shades of the bhakti that Radha fully embodies. So this is the primary shakti. In all of Krishna's movement, and it's, it's all under the influence of this bhakti shakti. Hmm? This bhakti is so powerful, this shakti, that it can overwhelm Krishna. Therefore Krishna's crying, you've got to bring her here today. Like I told the story. You've got to bring Radha here today. This is a way of illustrating this philosophical, theological point. Bhakti, this shakti, that is bhakti, this internal shakti, this primary shakti, is so powerful hmm, that it can overwhelm Bhagwan. It takes Brahman, the great, that you're just like, whoa, and makes him like a lover, hmm, a needy lover. Hmm? That's, just, that's a very overwhelming idea. Now, if that's the case, that this is the power of bhakti, when it's f bhakti proper, when she's fully manifest, hmm, then this secondary shakti, or the maya shakti, the external shakti, that governs this world, hmm, it's, it has three faces, rajas, tamas, sattva, have you heard these terms? Hmm? This is the, it's modus operandus, right? How it kind of works on us, on our psyche, and uh, it, it our psyche is constituted of it, and our physical self is constituted of these modes, an ignorant mode, bringing inertia, a, 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 a active mode, causing us to try to better ourselves materially and acquire and so forth, and a, a mode that brings some clarity and peacefulness and promotes a spiritual pursuit. So, Raj, Dhammas, Rajas, Sattva. This is a Shakti, right? The constituents, if you will, of the Shakti. Hmm? Of, of, of the Maya Shakti, the secondary Shakti, the external Shakti. Just like that Bhakti, that Shakti, internal, is governing the Leela, making it go round, this Shakti is making us go round here, so to speak. Hmm? And we are the intermediate, made of the intermediate Shakti. Hmm? So we could be influenced by the Maya Shakti, or we could be influenced by the primary 
shakti, the bhakti shakti. Hmm? Sometimes this intermediate shakti is called tatasta shakti. Tata means the beach. And it, it implies that there's a line on the beach that demarks the sand from the water. And that's you. And you just can't quite put your finger on it. Hmm? You understand? You look, there's a line there, but <laughs> something like that. So in a sense it said we're kind of a product of our environment. We're something, but our environment will determine our potential. If we're influenced by the Maya Shakti, then our potential will be very much eclipsed. If we come under the influence of the internal Shakti, Bhakti, our potential will reach its full uh, potential. Hmm? So, again, as I said earlier, we know there's a Maya Shakti. Hmm? We're wondering why. <laughs> uh, but we, we know there is one. Hmm? And the sacred texts tell us like this. And, and we know that, well, we're different from it because we're not an object, we're a subject. Hmm? The Maya Shakti is turned on by us, but then it has a, it has a power. In other words, it's, it's like in order to, to, for the television to, to show itself, you have to turn it on. Once you turn it on, it could take over your life. Hmm? You know, so we kind of turn on the Maya Shakti, which is asat, achit, nirananda. We are sat chidananda. It is asat, the opposite. Hmm? It's not real in any of its manifestations because they're here today and gone tomorrow. Hmm? It's asat. It's achit. It's not a knowing. Hmm? It's nirananda. It's not full of bliss. It's actually full of sorrow if you interact with it. Hmm? For you. Hmm? I mean, we're, meanwhile, you're, we're a unit of sat, chit, and ananda, but we're sat, chit, ananda, anu, very small, atomic. And although we're sat, chit, ananda, because we're anu, small, there's a possibility for that maya shakti to, to cover us. Hmm? We never go out. Hmm? We never even touch it really. But we are covered by it, identified with it, like you might be identified with a virtual reality, hmm? although you're sitting in your chair, and none of those things are happening to you in the computer animated uh, world. Hmm? So, we know that we are made of eternity, knowledge, and bliss, but we're our constitution with regard to that is such that we can be overwhelmed by the Maya Shakti. We know that bhakti, this shakti, can overwhelm Bhagwan. What to speak of overwhelming the Maya Shakti? It would be a cakewalk, right? It would be like Maya Shakti is kind of like the shadow, and but bhakti shakti is like the light. The shadow has no standing in the light. Hmm? We may be overwhelmed by that shakti, but bhakti never will. And if bhakti comes into our life, that shadow will be retired very easily. And we will have the capacity to overwhelm Bhagwan. That's what it means to become ad devotee in a full sense of the term. Hmm? So, that there's a Maya Shakti and that there's us, there's an objective world and a subjective experiencer, we, we have experience of that. Hmm? And sacred texts are talking about that. Hmm? They're also talking about ways in which we can orient ourselves and conduct ourselves that we can transcend that influence. 
we inherently want to transcend that influence. Whether we know it and we can articulate that or not, what we really want constitutes that. Hmm? We want enduring happiness. You can't have it in relation to the Maya Shakti, so we, we want to transcend it. So the sacred texts are saying, what you want, what you reason naturally in human life is a possibility that you, that you could be perfectly happy, perfectly fulfilled, that you, you, could, you want to live forever, you know... Huh? It's like how you feel when you're a kid, you know. But Bhakti says, "Don't grow up. You can, you know, you can, you can be a Peter Pan. You know, you can, you can, you can live forever. You, know, you can always be, you know, it's possible." Hmm? Um, so it's answering to the, to consciousness starting to feel itself in human life. That what are my possibilities? Starting to come out and feel itself hmm? more so than it does in less complex species of life. Hmm? Human life, it starts to come out. I start to feel there's more to life. I don't realize it's me, I'm the more. I think, you know, I should be able to fly in the sky. I should be able to go to the bottom of the ocean. I create a submarine and a jet plane and so forth. And because we can be anywhere, in any situation, we're, we're eternal and so forth. Nothing can kill us and so forth. So what the sacred text is giving us is some like a methodology that answers to our perceived possibilities and how to realize them. Hmm? And it talks about how to move in a different way in relation to the Maya Shakti than we have been, hmm? which isn't getting us anywhere in terms of our perceived potential. Hmm? So we think that makes a lot of sense. Just like you take the Gita. If you study the Gita, you st- in the beginning there's some philosophy and it starts to make a lot of sense. It talks about there's a self, there's there's the there's Maya, the illusion, and so forth. You're getting it all. It's like not something. That, it's like before your eyes. You just weren't looking at it. So opening your eyes to something that's right there before you, and you go, "Wow, now I see that." Yeah, it's like one of those things you look at it, you know, and you know those they draw those things, and you look at it the right way. You see, oh, yeah, there's a picture in there, something like that. Hmm? So when we hear from the sacred text and saintly persons, all of a sudden we start to see something that's right in front of us. That's why I like to say the Gita is not about believing, really, as much as it's about nature of being. Hmm? The Bible might be more about believing, at least that's the way they present it. I never read the Bible, but people seem to present it like it's all about believing. Hmm? But the Gita is, is a discourse on the nature of being, and if we study it, we think, yeah, that's, that is what's going on, isn't it? Now, there's a theological aspect of the Gita, too. When we hit the middle six chapters starts to become theological. Krishna starts talking about himself. There's a little belief that's required there. Hmm? But we, if we really understood the first six chapters, we're really grounded in what being is. And we've learned it from the person who's now saying, and I've got a being too. And this is what I'm like. Hmm? I'm God. Hmm? There's a God. And so, so, so there's, there's like really good reason for believing. It's well-reasoned there's something else that's being said that I can't quite see now, but it's said, if you keep proceeding in this way, you'll start to see this too. So we have every good reason. There's faith and there's blind faith. Hmm? Faith isn't a bad thing. Blind faith might be problematic. Hmm? Well-reasoned faith based on experience. Hmm? So, so, so we know that there is an objective world we call it the Maya Shakti. It has some force. 
when it's animated by us. And we know there's us, the subjective element. Hmm? We, we sense we should be able to transcend it. Hmm? Now there are sacred texts and there are persons who have followed it, embody the teaching there, and inspire us to think, hmm, yeah, it's possible to realize my objective. Hmm? And so then we take the bhakti, for example, and we start to transcend it. So but then your question is, well, why is this there in the first place? Hmm? Well, as I said, the sacred texts tell us, look at it like this, there is an, there is, there is, a, there's an energetic source and there's energy. Maya Shakti is one of the energies. Let us call it the subconscious of God. If this primal Shakti is the, is the awakened consciousness, then there's a subconsciousness to God. If there's light, then a shadow. Hmm? The absence of light, some shadow. So Maya Shakti is talking about this aspect. Why it exists exists is as good of a question as why God exists, hmm? in a sense. Because the sacred text is explaining this is part of what we call God, hmm? who is constituted of, who is an energetic source constituted of many energies, or shaktis. Hmm? Let me list, it says, the primary ones. There are others, but these are the, the principal ones. Hmm? Maya shakti, jeev shakti, that's us, and the bhakti shakti, or sarup shakti. Hmm? So, when I say, why is there a Maya Shakti, I might as well ask, why is there God? Because there's, there's, in one sense, no difference between the Maya Shakti and God. In another sense, there is a difference. Like there's a difference between, I said, having the sun in your room and being on the sun. Hmm? So, at the same time, we have that there is a Maya Shakti, there's a, a form or a manifestation of the Godhead that presides over the Maya Shakti. Hmm? This we call Vishnu. Hmm? It's a particular manifestation of Krishna. Krishna is only in Leela. Hmm? Really not, not, not here. Even if he comes here, he's not here. Hmm? There's Narayan. This is a four-handed manifestation of Krishna where devotees worship him in emotions of reverence and awe and so forth. In the realm of Krishna, in the realm of Narayan, s others are manifest. Just like I said, Radha manifests, Krishna manifests as Radha. The one becomes many. Hmm? For Leela. Hmm? So Vishnu also hmm? presides over the Maya Shakti hmm? and decides to become many. Hmm. Who's, who's exhaling is the, is, the, is the world, who's inhaling is its annihilation, and again it comes and again it goes and so forth. Well, this world, this maya, is not a world unless there are jivas to mix with it. The subjective and the objective components both make up the world. So it's said, just like, in, just like Krishna is one, but becomes two as Radha Krishna for what reason? For love's reason. Hmm? To taste love is the idea. Hmm? So, Vishnu, in his Leela, it's called Shristi Leela. It means the Leela of creation. Hmm? This is a Leela also. <laughs> and he desires to become many. 
The one is in dream, he become, wants to become many. Hmm? And so, from a hetero, from a homogeneous kind of condition, in deep sleep, within Vishnu, we become manifest. Now, because the Vishnu is presiding over the Maya Shakti, we come in, in contact with the Maya Shakti. That becomes a problem. Hmm? So Vishnu comes as different avatars to remedy the situation, to teach, hmm? sending the sadhus and so forth to teach about bhakti, that we might meet our maker. It's an inev- Because he's presiding over the Maya Shakti, we are small units of sat, chit, ananda, but we can be overwhelmed by asat, achit, niranda. So it's, to remedy the problem, it's kind of the leela in which God becomes the savior. And we're players in that. Hmm? It may not sound very palatable if you're suffering in one sense, hmm? but it's a very metaphysical answer. Hmm? And as I said, some things, if we want to know them, there's a place to go beyond our mind. Hmm? And if we found very good things there that are very helpful to us, some things and explanations that may not sound as entirely as palatable as we might have liked, we still accept them. And then as we progress, we get a better understanding of the whole thing. I mean, let's say you know, you've been suffering forever in material existence. Sounds pretty bad from a time without any beginning. Hmm? But that it, that it may end forever, if you can understand that, hmm? then it makes it very small. Hmm? So there's a Leela like this. It's called Shristi Leela. We're part of it right now. Hmm? And it's the mixing between the Jiva Shakti and the Maya Shakti. You see, this has no beginning. Vishnu has no beginning. God has no beginning. The world cycles of the coming and going of the universes is compared to his breath. So that that has no beginning either. Do you understand? If the God has no beginning, his breath has no beginning. This is a metaphor to say his world is a breathing, so that can't have a beginning. These world cycles can have no beginning. Now, again, I'm talking about things that you can go, yeah, but... (laughs) <laughs> yeah, but it doesn't really fit in there. I can shake my head and go, yeah, okay, but something. this is the, the problem with our mental and intellectual system. It cannot fit the whole of truth inside of it. That's why we need help from outside of it. Hmm? So, Vishnu is without beginning. Hmm? Therefore, the world cycle must be without beginning. Therefore, karma must be without beginning. You understand this point? Karma must be without beginning. In the full sense of the term, no beginning. That means what? Because there cannot be a material world without karma. If it's a world without karma, it's not a material world. Hmm? Karma is the force that binds the jiva with the maya. Hmm? So karma has no beginning. The world cycle has no beginning. Vishnu has no beginning. Hmm? But... While Vishnu has no beginning and no end, and the world cycle has no beginning and no end, and karma has no beginning, it can have an end. 
Hmm? That's the good news. <laughs> it can have an end. And that, that, it's, that it's still going on, that we can be, you know, we're a testament to that ourselves, our own lives, that it can come to an end. And the sadhus exemplify that, hmm? encourage us to go in that direction. So it's some kind of explanation as to a why question that doesn't have an answer. <laughs> yes. Hmm? And of course, also, of course, also said, and once going there, from here, one never returns. Because coming under the influence of bhakti proper, how can that maya shakti have influence over you? That's impossible. It can overwhelm Bhagwan. <laughs> how can maya shakti over, ever overwhelm it? Impossible. Hmm? So to invite, to position ourselves such that bhakti may want to make ingress into our lives, hmm? this is our task, this is our effort. Make an effort for grace. That is the idea. Does that help? Yes, yeah. So, what else? What's the, what's the time? How long have we talked? Uh, it's 3.05. Oh, that's wrong? It's the time I've been recording. About an hour. So, we're going to What do you think? Understandable? Somewhat. Somewhat. So, your question? I was wrong. Okay. I do have one question, just in general, regarding the audience here. I'm just a little surprised as to the demographics. Women like yoga. <laughs> Women like yoga. <laughs> You know what else? Old, women like bhakti song. also. Yeah, women are smarter. I don't know. I've, I've never seen the demographics. Like I've met some pretty smart ones. I think that uh, I never it's... Saw women are smarter. <laughs> Harry Belafonte, it's an old song. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, look at the room. I've never seen a room like this. Yeah, you know, bhakti is very popular amongst women in India really? because men are too caught up in their head, I guess. <laughs> They got fat heads uh, often. It's uh, <laughs> bhakti is a very feminine expression. Kirtan, as I said, it's, it's, a, it's a feminine word. Hmm? Bhakti is a feminine word. Shakti is a feminine word. Hmm? All the, in Sanskrit, all the almost almost all, which is just a very couple exceptions of all the active nouns, um, are feminine. Hmm? So. This is the whole idea that Shakti is feminine. And we say there's Bhagwan, the Shakti Man, and Shakti, the energetic and the energy. And in one way of looking at it, the energetic is subordinate to the energy. The other way of looking at it, when we look at Bhakti, the primal Shakti actually takes precedence hmm, over the Shakti Man. And this has become very charming. Then. Hmm. Therefore, in the Bhakti tradition, we have. Krishna, for example, we have the jiva, ourselves, and we have bhakti. She's up here. And Krishna's drawn to bhakti, and the jiva's drawn to bhakti. Therefore, my Guru Maharaj used to say, every religion is teaching that God is the most worshipable object, but we are teaching about the worshipable object of God. There's a difference. Hmm? 
So bhakti becomes the worshipable object of God. Krishna is bowing down to Radha. And there are yogis that try to attain Krishna that don't aren't so familiar with the nature of bhakti and they can't relate to that. How can Krishna, he's the supreme God, be bowing down to anyone? Hmm? So you have to understand bhakti. <laughs> what is bhakti? Of course, that is his own shakti, but that's a beautiful idea. Hmm? So what else? Any other thoughts? Yes. One question. You, last day you were talking about uh, sort of the linear conception of time, uh, you know, beginning and then time and then end. And it seems to be that, is, you know, until recently that's been the dominant paradigm in science, but it seems like in the West there's also sort of a religious take on that too. Christianity is very linear as well. And there's a creation and then there's time and then it ends. And within that there's one expression of God, there's one life. Um, we see multiple lives, multiple expressions of time. My question is though, um, uh, within that linear conception of time, they're really interested in eschatology, they're really into the end, you know, uh, the book of Revelation, and apocalypse, and 2012, and all this kind of stuff, it seems to be kind of a rehash of that way of thinking. Um, <laughs> Can we disregard this kind of? Uh, I, I personally, I think it's nonsense. But, uh, we can disregard this kind of apocalyptic thinking on the grounds that it's simply linear. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And it's true that linear linear conception of time is born in in, in Christianity. Augustine was the first to really articulate that idea, although it has some basis perhaps in the Old, Te Old Testament, I think. Maybe the New Testament. I'm not sure which. But, uh, and, and science was, modern science was born as a Christian. You might know. It was born in the context of Christianity in Europe, modern science. And it was thought to be the means by which God would be proved in natural theology. We'll, the, through examining the, the natural world, we'll prove the existence of God. Hmm? Of course, as it grew up, the child of modern science as a Christian, it became a little agnostic with Newton and, and the idea that the world's a closed system there's not any room for God's miracles to come on in. So then some theistic scientists started to become deists. And the classical example of the clock. The world's like a clock. God turned it on and that's it. And he's not, he's not involved anymore. That's just going around. And hmm? he's not, He started the world and he's aloof. Hmm? Is again another part of Christianity where the world and God, humanity and God are really there's a deep, a strong line demarcation between them. Hmm? We don't find that in Bhakti or in Hinduism. Hmm? The world, as I said, the world is Shakti of Bhagwan. It is Bhagwan, and it's not at the same time. It's a panentheistic, not pantheistic here, but panentheistic idea where the world is God 
and God's not the world at the same time. Hmm? Immanence and transcendence. God's in the world and beyond the world at the same time. Hmm? So, anyway, from deism and the beginning of adolescent uh, agnosticism, the, uh, you know, the, the newborn of modern science moved to atheism in its adulthood. Now science is in its adulthood. Boy, it's really energized. It's like taken over, you know, uh, in so many respects. And it's l largely atheistic. Hmm? But, of course, my idea is that if it's, to, if it's to live on into old age, it'll have to become a mystic. Hmm? Because the mysticism is, is really is, is, is as much the pursuit of knowing hmm, that science is, and at the same time, so it has elements from that side, hmm, and it has elements from the religious side to it as well. Mysticism is, is, is the heart of religion, and it's full of introspection and doing away with superstition and that kind of thing, and getting to the r real nature of things, which starting to sound scientific, if you, if you will. So, and we find this, of course, th and there are those persons uh, influenced, for example, by the, the paradigm, of the quanti quantum you know, paradigm shift that tend to go and say what I'm saying. I so I have to start to have a mystical take on physics and and the nature of the world and so forth. Mm. It said that God is always in the in 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 the science of physics. He never disappears there. Mm. So right, and now in physics we find cyclical time. These ideas like in string theory where the multiverse is posited and it there's a contract expanding and a contracting universe and so forth, it sounds just like the breathing of Vishnu. Hmm? Um, so, yeah, the, these are, this idea of, of linear time is problematic. It's problematic to the mind, hmm? actually. And it's very illusory, the idea that infinite progress, it's just a line of, we're always progressing all the time. That's, that's a, quite an illusion. And, um, and the Christian idea of time stopping at a certain point hmm, is also very problematic. <laughs> very problematic. Hmm. Paul Steinhardt, he might be like the mother of, or the father of string theory. He's positing time, no, time with no beginning, time with no end, revolving, expanding and contracting universes and so forth. So... So yeah, th these are these are ideas to be retired. There's no kind of the, the, the apocalypse is at the same time the apocalypse and the end is now. That's true. That's the way it should be. We don't need a, a, a psychologically created excuse to become busy about our spiritual practice. <laughs> hmm? All right, this sense of self that we've identified with, it's, it's dying now. In fact, 
it's closer to ending today than it was yesterday. <laughs> and so with every day I wake up, this sense of self is closer to being to, to disappearing forever hmm? than it ever was before. So we have all kind of impetus, negative impetus, if you will, for spiritual practice. And then we have positive spiritual impetus for practice by good association, gathering like this, and sharing amongst ourselves. Hmm? So we don't need to create some, you know, end of the world is going to happen. And and even even if we get struck by a meteor tomorrow, you know, it's possible. The world goes on. The meteor's part of the world, you know. And you say, the world's going to end. You're thinking about this world... <laughs> in my head, and I've expanded it to mean the planet and, you know, all these... But that's all that's really ending. Hmm? The planet will be here in another form, split in half or whatever. Or now I read something the other day, they found a billion planets somewhere that are... have potential for life or something, someplace. I don't know how they found them or what, but... <laughs> so... Hmm. They're kind of small ideas. Uh, should be retired, yeah. Okay, well, we talked for a while, so we'll, we'll end there and we'll meet again, if you can come, some of you, tomorrow for more discussion. How's that? See Hari Kirtanaki Jai. Hari Vaishnava Guru Parampara Ki Jai. Guru Premanandi.